This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Tony Black. Hi Tony, how are you? I'm very well Duncan. I was tempted to try and uh, say hello in a Russian accent um, or (laughs) say hello in Russian. (laughs) Здравствуйте. Well there you go. I actually, I did GCSE Russian and and not much of it sticks with me but that's about about all I can do. Perfect. I'm not even (laughs) going to try and and replicate what you've just said but uh, (laughs) I I thought thought better of it. But yeah, thanks. It's nice to be back. Mostly, unfortunately, most of the Russian phrases I can remember are probably not suitable for a family-friendly podcast (laughs) because those are the ones that kind of stuck in my mind. Yeah, because we are looking at the Cold War, I guess. Well, Well, specifically the end of the Cold War. We're looking at the kind of thawing uh, of the Cold War and the idea of the end of history, uh, which is in the credits of our very show, has been, you know, for the last, whatever it is, 80-odd episodes, uh, we've been quoting this line of Kirk's The End of History, which is itself a quotation used by Nicholas Meyer in the script of Star Trek VI uh, from someone called Francis Fukuyama, who wrote an essay which was originally published in 1989, so I guess around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, so when the kind of Cold War was coming to an end, in which he talked about this idea that the end of the Cold War was the end of history, or at least of history, uh, sort of as we knew it. And I suppose Maya uses that as a kind of a way of sort of indicating this anxiety, I guess, that a lot of these characters in that film are are feeling. The conspirators essentially don't want history to end. They don't want the kind of um, established patterns of conflict and kind of geopolitics um, to come to an end. And so he ended up using this phrase. And I just thought we'd kind of use that as a way in to thinking about this subject and sort of what that moment represented really and what that kind of potential for the future was. Because I suppose, you know, the, the film as well called The Undiscovered Country. Now, as we know in Hamlet, The Undiscovered Country is death. So there's that kind of moment in the film where that's kind of... um sort of frisson of, of uncertainty and, and, and danger where um, Gorkon seems to be saying something quite threatening, but actually Maya kind of reclaims the concept of the undiscovered country as being about the future and the idea being that there's something to kind of look forward to optimistically. But absolutely for Fukuyama, the, the end of history is kind of both uh, maybe brings safety, but it's also not necessarily an entirely positive thing. So um, 
it's a, it's an interesting kind of way way of looking at that moment as as not just a kind of celebration of oh this this great terrible conflict that could have killed the population of the world is over but something is being lost at the same time it's it's a fascinating essay it really is it's not that long and you it is available to read online uh, as a pdf it's only a few pages but and interestingly enough he has since uh, i think roughly about 10 maybe 20 years later he wrote a, almost a rebuttal of his own essay. And, and and he expanded it into a book called The End of History and the Last Man, which I think came out in 1991, the year of the undiscovered country. But but years later, he wrote a rebuttal because he realised that the ideas that he put out there in The End of History didn't really come to pass. Because what essentially he was saying in that essay is that we reached a point where Western liberalism, if you like, in, in quote marks, was asserting itself as the dominant form of global politics, global governance, sort of global society in many ways. And what he meant by that really was that since particularly the the, the changes in the world that had happened over the last 150 years, roughly, since the Industrial Revolution, the advent of Marxism and how that ended up growing essentially into national socialism, which then was morphed into fascism by Hitler and by Mussolini and by and, and 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 then by Stalin on the opposite side of that with communism, and it started all these sort of political movements and so that, that veered off into these really extreme positions. That the, the Cold War was essentially a way of dealing with the fallout from those ideas that had been, themselves been born out of the systems that had existed for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Particularly things like feudalism, you know, and absolute monarchy you know divine right of kings all these things that that meant that equality in society wasn't really there and you had systems and you had layers and there were people in charge and there were people at the bottom and there was a big divide and we still do have a divide in society and it's kind of one of the reasons that Fukuyama kind of ended up not really believing in his own work but at the time when we got to the end of the 1980s into the 1990s it felt like liberalism had triumphed fascism was destroyed in the second world war and even though the you know the embers of that sort of continued on over the decades, it was ne- the, the 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 shock of the war sort of destroyed any serious contenders to take over Hitler's place. And then the battle against communism with Stalinism, and and then you know the the Soviet Union and all the different premiers it went through and all the different governments sort of was a slow death. You know, if you want to compare the undiscovered, the original undiscovered country, the death, as in Shakespeare, sort of communism over that period sort of withered away, certainly in the Soviet Union, to the point that the Cold War came to an end. And it changed in China. And the reason that China ended up sort of, you know, growing and existing to the point it's now pretty much the predominant superpower is that they embraced a lot of the capitalist principles that the West, particularly in the 1980s, started to really embrace. So the idea ultimately of this and why it ties into Star Trek is that Star Trek VI was all about, and Nicholas Meyer was interested in sort of reflecting this crucial period at the point that he read the end of history in that Star Trek was able with everything in the undiscovered country with the Klingons and the Federation and Praxis and, and you know, Gorkhan in reflecting how in our world it appeared like a dominant form of peaceful, essentially peaceful, progressive politics and society had asserted itself and would continue on indefinitely. And 
in theory, lead us to the world of Starfleet and the Federation and the United Federation of Planets. And that's what this whole film is about. And what then what it is interesting is later on in that it, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, that hasn't really come to pass. So it's it's a fascinating it's 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 not out of date as such because it does reflect the last 50 years, but it is interesting in that it's like Star Trek Six, it is a particular it is rooted in a particular point in time now, I think. I think it's interesting that Fukuyama should come to kind of, to some degree, repudiate his own argument. I mean, Nicholas Meyer as well, if you read his book, A View from the Bridge, in the chapter, there's a long chapter about the undiscovered country where he sort of talks about all the influences and the inspiration behind that film. And then at the end, there's a little section that he calls post-mortem for basically bringing it up to date. And he says, um, the passage of time has altered my perceptions of the film itself. While I'm still pleased to find it entertaining, there can be no doubt that part of what we intended has dated in melancholy and chilling fashion. He says, our point at the time certainly anticipated a wonderful new chapter in human history once the Cold War was over. According to our view, people frightened of change were just scaredy cats. In fact, however, a wonderful new chapter in human history is not what has occurred. Instead, we got 9-11 and a resurgent form of human horror, terrorism, in which incalculable destruction is visited upon us not by dictators and armies, but rather by crazies with box cutters and primitive but lethally destructive capabilities. So Maya, obviously, sort of looking back on the film, feels that maybe there was something slightly naive almost about it. I mean, actually, when I read Fukuyama's essay, I have to say, I think he's pretty on point because he does. OK, so he he, he does, you know, sort of declare the end of history. This is quite a big, uh, bold <laughs> statement in a sense, kind of saying not, not, yeah. nothing. I mean, it, it kind of hinges on how you define history. You know, what does he mean exactly by history? I mean, the, the way he describes it is, he says, what we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. There is obviously a kind of tie-in into Star Trek there in some ways, in that there's this kind of sense of the Federation as this kind of ultimate for, ultimate form of human government that is is going to endure well we'll see what happens in discovery season three but you know <laughs> seemingly going to kind of endure forever and certainly i mean when i had darren mooney on the show he was talking about this a bit in the in the 90s in that kind of post-cold war era about this idea of the federation kind of enduring forever fukuyama doesn't quite go so far as to say that that's sort of it and everything is all going to be fine after that though because he does allow for two sort of exceptions to this idea he, he doesn't think there are going to be any more sort of great ideological battles between superpowers and so on but the two areas where he does think that history might sort of bite back one way or another are in relation to religion and in relation to nationalism and if we think about the kind of stuff that has happened in the decades since then, you, you know, Maya points to 9-11, obviously religious fundamentalism playing a big role. I mean, in the last few years, you know, something like Brexit, we've seen a kind of rise of very ugly nationalisms uh, all over Europe and to some extent around the world. So in some ways, I kind of feel like he, you know, anticipated these elements uh, fairly well. I noticed from, I mean, I, I, I have to say, I didn't know anything about him, but I note from his little biog at the end of the essay, it says, Francis Fukuyama is deputy director of the State Department's policy planning staff and former analyst at the Rand Corporation. So he's someone who I guess you might think should know what he's doing. That's presumably not the same Rand Corporation featuring the Iron Fist uh, mm. at the head of things. But, <laughs> you, know, you never know. Obviously someone with, <laughs> with his finger on the pulse of kind of international affairs at the time mm. anyway. It, it, you're right in that he did sort of 
on the one hand declare this you know great end of like an ideological struggle but then yeah he did lean into some interesting things that have come to pass and I think that is a that is why maybe he found it easy to to write a rebuttal later on and say yeah actually we kind of called this a bit too soon and I, I'm guessing it's probably because the Cold War was such a dominant part of existence for you know 50 years near nearly 45 50 years after the war you know and it completely dominated the the very beginnings and for and the majority of you know the first uh, the first half of star trek's life you know from 1966 through to 1991 and it was sort of all pervasive in society and culture you know in cinema in television you know everything was sort of overshadowed by this looming specter of you know the the uh, mutually assured destruction you know the idea of the cold war being you had these two superpowers you had america at the end of the second world war you had the soviet union both of which then were you know for decades in a in a what what at first was a, an increasingly escalating race to self destruction you know which sort of peaked roughly around the cuban missile crisis in 1962, which is the closest they ever came to actual outright nuclear Armageddon. And then ever after that, ever since then, it sort of sort of started to ebb away. It sort of started to slowly crumble as the Soviet Union itself started to slowly crumble. You know, it slowly began to wither away due to, you know, mismanagement, you know, economic strife, the fact that after Stalin purged and, and you know, starved millions of his people... They this this communist doctrine of you know complete well this fake communist doctrine because that's the crucial thing about the Soviet Union it never really operated as as what you would call actual socialism or in a way a fair communism because it was always ran by by corrupt people you know it was it was a it was a warped version of those ideas which is one of the reasons why socialism is so is such a terrifying word to many Americans in particular because for years it was demonized and it was demonized for the wrong reasons because ultimately Stalin and then subsequent leaders all the way up to Gorbachev, who was then the change point in the mid-80s, were all lording over this system which slowly crumbled to the point that when you got to the 1980s, the mid-1980s, and Gorbachev came in, you saw an immediate sort of change. And this is where it was reflected particularly in Star Trek VI because in, in, many, t- in many ways, Gorkon is Gorbachev. The character of Gorkon is Mikhail Gorbachev, who was, who was the, the guy who... It, brought in the two key ideas of glasnost and perestroika which were all about opening up you know russia to try and have better relations particularly with Ray- ronald reagan at the time who was president of america and for this conflict that was still there with nuclear weapons that was still in theory the same conflict that you would have had in you know 1950 or 1960 but it was operating on very different terms because the world had changed and that sowed the seeds for the end of history, as you say, the end of this ideological struggle. But it came out because of decay. And that's exactly what you see in the undiscovered country. You know, you see that in the reason that the, the Federation and the Klingons are entering this, you know, potential peace, because the Klingons don't really have a choice. They've they've reached a point where their system doesn't really work anymore. They've suffered this huge shock in praxis exploding because of mismanagement, because of you know, not being able to function properly, and they're left in a position where it's either make peace or, or die, essentially. And that's and that's 
re- very reflective, I think, of where the Soviet Union was at the time. And there's also a discussion in the film about the fact that Gorkon's ideas, I think Azetbor says at one point that his ideas were kind of waiting for the right moment to sort of flourish. And I think that was to some degree true of Gorbachev as well. I mean, the impact of Chernobyl was that it it, it sort of galvanised him to go further in the directions he was... It, it was sort of... More than anything, I think maybe it was a kind of a proof that the system wasn't working, if you know what I mean. It was a proof that things needed to change one way or another. Here was this kind of reformist character and the moment was coming where he could, you, you know, actually form a relatively good relationship with Reagan. I mean, Reagan is someone who had come in quite sort of hawkish in some ways, I think, quite kind of, you know, he didn't just want to kind of end the Cold War. I think he sort of wanted to win it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and funnily enough, actually, one of the things that apparently changed Reagan's mind was another film that Nicholas Meyer uh, made um, called The Day After, which was a TV movie, mm. which depicted the uh, sort of aftermath of a nuclear war, basically, and the yeah. kind of impact on ordinary people. Um, and was just, I mean, I haven't seen it, but by all accounts, it's completely devastating and terrifying and really freaks a lot of people out. Uh, one of them being Reagan, who kind of saw it and immediately uh, started to kind of slightly change his attitude towards, you, you know, how, how to deal with the Russians, how to deal with the Cold War. But Gorkon absolutely is a sort of Gorbachev stand-in. It kind of raises the question then, does that mean Kirk is Reagan? Because there is something a little <laughs> bit uh, Reagan-like about Kirk, Maybe. Think, particularly in this film. You know, because Kirk has that kind of slightly cheesy, you, you could kind of imagine Kirk used to be an actor, if you know what I mean. <laughs> because yeah. William Shatner is such a kind of, he's a bit of a ham. Do you oh, know what I mean? Would be yeah, one way of putting it. He's, yeah. you, you know, I mean, I, he's great. He's perfect. But, yeah. you know, and, and Kirk as well is, has a little bit of that quality. And what Reagan and Gorbachev found was that as much as they were on opposite sides, personally, they got on better than I think previous leaders ever had done. Do you know what I mean? They sort of were able to build on some kind of rapport and so on. And we kind of see that in the undiscovered country that, you know, with Kirk and Gorkon, as much as there's a lot of hostility, as much as there's a lot of resentment coming from Kirk, particularly at being sent on this mission and so on, he does sort of form a little bit of a bond with Gorkon in that very brief moment to the extent that Gorkon in his kind of dying moments sort of places responsibility for this whole peace process and this whole kind of um, step forward on Kirk's shoulders somehow. So they, they kind of have that meaningful connection one way or another. I mean, Gorkon is a fantastic... I, I love Gorkon as a character. I think he's a fantastic character. He's also, of course, inspired by Abraham Lincoln, I think. as that kind of Abraham Lincoln uh, yeah. look to the style yeah. of him as the, yeah, there is. as the assassinated president, basically. Yeah, yeah. But Gorkon is, is, is definitely a, a fantastic character and very much in the mould of Gorbachev, even just coming down to the name. I mean, the film is quite sort of... In some ways, the, the historical parallels are quite on the nose. You, you know, it, it's not really subtle that this is what it's about. It's kind of, um, this is kind of Star Trek slightly bonking you on the head with, with its historical parallels, but at the same time, doing it quite inventively, doing it quite interestingly. Um, you know, opening with this Chernobyl moment with the explosion of Praxis and as if to, you know, really hammer the point home. I love the scene that you get, you know, the, the moon explodes. There's this kind of sense of, chaos you know what's going on what's going on uh you see the brief video of that klingon like engulfed mm. in flames and chaos and then this sort of propaganda uh, th- and then this kind of piece of propaganda movie yeah. comes on and this rather calm klingon guy is sort of saying nothing to worry about everything here. is fine you know, yeah. everything is fine <laughs> and it's like you know the sort of politburo has put yeah, out their, their kind of statement or something which again is exactly what happened with chernobyl that they didn't inform anyone what had happened i think it was 
it, it was scientists at a nuclear facility in another country, maybe like Switzerland or somewhere like that, that realised that something had gone on in Russia because they were seeing spikes in their own radiation readings and they could identify which direction they were coming from because of which way the wind was blowing and so on. And that was how we sort of found out, you know, people in the West kind of realised that something had happened. So again, there was that kind of sense of secrecy and that sense of kind of spin, you, you know, kind of propaganda and, and, and sort of spin going on in a way. But there's a great section in in A View from the Bridge where Maya sort of talks about the, the genesis of, of the story for Star Trek VI. And it's kind of a controversial one because it's another one of these films where the credits for who wrote it are a bit misleading. I mean, and he goes into quite a lot of detail in the book about exactly what the process was this time round, and, you know, whose idea it was. It was basically Nimoy came up with the original idea. They had a long walk on the beach. This is the way Maya tells it anyway. Nimoy kind of came up with the idea, this is the wall coming down in space. This is the kind of the end of, of the Cold War. But it was a kind of one or two line pitch. Maya then, as he describes it, put in all the details, put in the kind of Chernobyl thing, put in the kind of, you know, the Klingon, the, the, the role of Gorkon in all of this, the assassinations, all this sort of stuff, basically the essentially the plot of the movie. But then what happened was this weird thing where they they asked, they said they didn't want him to write it after all. They'd, they'd offered him the job to direct the film. They got these other guys in to write it. They wrote a script that then ended up not being used. In the end, Maya had to come back in and, and write the script himself anyway with his assistant who um, is sort of credited on it with him. And then there was this kind of um, issue about Nimoy was getting annoyed with him and saying, because he was having meetings with these other writers. And then there was some dispute about, you know, whose story was going where and who was getting, it all seemed to become very complicated one way or another. But one thing I think we can say, certainly based on Maya's account, is that all the kind of historical parallels were what he was very much dropping in as he was kind of developing this story quite early on in the process. And in some ways, they do seem quite kind of on the nose. But then he tells this quite funny story about going to see his dentist six months later and making some remark about, you, you know, yeah, I, I wonder if, you know, it was kind of a bit obvious, that film. And the dentist looks at him really baffled and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, I just I just thought it was a space story. I had no idea it was about contemporary events. So, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, and I suppose that's the whole, the whole thing, isn't it? That not... Not everybody will read into things in the way that a writer will put them across necessarily or, you know, some people, you know, will go and see Star Trek and they'll go and expect space and aliens and they won't really read into into anything beyond it. You know, and we're very good, aren't we, really, as as a as a culture of sort of placing meaning on, you know, particularly historical movies, TV. But at the time, you know, you'll read interviews from lots of people and they'll go, I was just writing a thriller, you know, I was, just, <laughs> you know, I, was, I didn't see any of that. It's fine. Okay. You want to, you want to see that? Fine. But, you know, I think you're right. It, there was more, you know, in this case, they did mean to, you know, reflect what was going on at the time. And I'm guessing it's because it was so or in the news, you know, it was so all pervasive, you know, it, Nimoy would have come up with this idea roughly with Maya in roughly around 1990. So you'd had the, the Berlin wall fall by that point, you'd had, the essay, as we talked about, Francis Fukuyama, you had this idea that, you know, Gorbachev had changed Russia because, you know, before then, when he came in, you know, they were they were really suffering economically. You know, you had lines of people waiting to buy food. Uh, they had things like coupons from the government that would allow them to buy socks. You know, they were they were that economically depressed, you know, and a lot of people think, a lot of historians have since thought that the fact that, Russia and America spent trillions of dollars 
on trying to propagate the arms race over and build all these nuclear weapons was one of the reasons that Russia in particular ended up in such dire straits in all these, you know, satellite countries that then subsequently began to, you know, detach and they began to, you know, get free elections under Gorbachev. You know, he signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty in 1987 and 2,600 medium range missiles were removed from Europe. And then off the back of that, you know, throughout the 89, you know, you had things like, you know, you had countries like Hungary and Poland, you know, hold their elections. You had, uh, you had Romania, you had Ceausescu in Romania strung up, you know, and, and hung in front of uh, full view and all this kind of thing. And I think it, 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 they knew all this was happening, you know, over there, you know, American life was carried on. American life was entering this, this real period of, what they call neo- neoliberalism, conservative neoliberalism and, and massive economic change, you know, in terms of the, the Reaganite sort of Thatcherite project, which was changing the way that the world, you know, operated in a financial sense. But on the on the flip side of that, you had a Russia in massive economic decline. And I think when Gorbachev came in, he he knew this couldn't continue. He knew that it was just and there and, and it was exacerbated by Chernobyl. I think Chernobyl happened in 1986. So that was about a year after Gorbachev came in. And then you get something like that, which was a massive, you know, sit. And the reason they covered that up is a massive reason because uh, of, of, like you say, spin, because they wanted to present this idea that the Soviet Union was unshakable. You know, the Iron Curtain was strong. And if the West finds out that they've they've due to and I would point anyone to the HBO series Chernobyl from last year because it is an absolute masterpiece of television and it tells this story in a forensic detail, a thrilling forensic detail as well of the fact that it was complete mismanagement that caused Chernobyl. That was all it was, human error and mismanagement and lack of funding. You know, it wasn't some great conspiracy. They were just crap at maintaining a nuclear facility and it ended up causing the worst catastrophe in, in human, nuclear catastrophe in human history. So, you know, all these things were, were building up at this point. So it makes sense that, you know, they would, particularly after the final frontier, which everybody knew at the time was a bit of a mistake and that it went, it was a bit of a wacky adventure that didn't quite work and was in danger of sort of ruining the cinematic reputation of Star Trek that they wanted to get back to in some sense, what the original series was, was doing, whether knowingly or not, and actually taking, you know, ideas at the time, you know, the amount of uh, original series episodes that dealt with Vietnam, some of them quite, on the nose about that, for instance, at the time. And they would tell all these parables and all these stories that were they were pretty on the nose. Star Trek Six feels in step with that. It feels like the Undiscovered Country feels like a truly original series movie in many ways, because it is, you know, pointing at you and saying, the Federation is America, the Klingons are the Russians. <laughs> this is this is basically what is going to happen. And, and the, the even spookier thing was that just as uh, weeks before the film was coming out, that's when the Soviet Union collapsed, and they were they all went, "Oh, that's amazing timing." 
Yeah. There's this amazing discussion in, in Meyer's book, isn't there, of the fact because there was this kind of coup against Gorbachev and they were saying, you know, he was he under arrest? Had he had he even been assassinated? And he sort of talks about looking back on it, feeling quite guilty that basically the only question everyone kept asking was, is this good for the film or bad for the film? <laughs> and the studio was sort of saying, um, they were editing it at the time. The studio was saying, look, can you get this done? You know, can you get this film done quicker? Yeah. We want to get it out now. We want to get it out, you know, to sort of capitalise on current events uh, going on outside. So I suppose that's the danger of, um, you know, making something too contemporary is that you're really, you know, especially in a period of such flux and change, you're kind of a hostage to real world events one way or another. But I think, I mean, absolutely, Star Trek VI of all the Star Trek films is by far the most grounded in its moment in history. And, and maybe also the fact that it's, it's a moment that feels so... It, because it, it, it's such a, a turning point, it's such a kind of precipice one way or another, that moment that it's kind of describing. And it's a huge turning point in the universe as well. It's not just that it's kind of, uh, it's not just that they're responding to, you know, insofar as current Star Trek, we might say in some ways it responds to Brexit or responds to Trump or something. It's responding to things that are big turning points in our own real life. It's the fact that the film itself is on the, cu- you know, on the cusp of this undiscovered country, whether that's, you know, a, a positive or a negative one, one way or another. But it's kind of, um, it's absolutely sort of balanced on that knife edge. And therefore it does uh, <laughs> run the risk of kind of, you know, real world events sort of overtaking it one way or another i think that's one of the reasons though it's so it's so good and it actually does resonate you know even now it's always been i mean it was the first star trek six we've probably talked about this on this podcast before but it was the first star trek film i saw at the cinema you know i was nine years old and i obviously didn't didn't go into that film with an awareness of oh this is a cold war allegory for the end of history <laughs> you know i went in as a nine-year-old boy who you know had loved the movies when i was when i was a kid and I'd love to go back and talk to that nine-year-old boy as to exactly what he thought about that film and what he what he got from that film as a child, because it is quite a grown-up Star Trek film in many ways. It's not a big adventure romp like uh, The Search for Spock or particularly The Voyage Home. It's not a, a bit of a wacky doodle kind of, let's go and find God, you know, Final Frontier kind of film. It's quite, it, it's funny, but it's also quite serious it's dealing with some big political ideas. It's got a sort of a, like a bit of a, an ominous sort of sense to it, even though ultimately there is a real message of hope at the end, and it is it does end on a on a flourish for this original series cast, and then suggests a much more peaceful future going forward. So I think it it's a really well crafted film because to me it's always felt like a little bit sort of steeped in the nineteen seventies. In a way, in certain, certain, it's sort of in the way it's filmed and the way it's constructed. You know, Maya almost presents it as, as a conspiracy thriller in space. In that, obviously, w- w- that you know, Spock turns detective. You know, you talked not so long back about Sherlock Holmes and how Spock and Maya's got a massive you know steeping in Sherlock Holmes, and he turns Spock into a little bit of a Holmes with the crew, and they're trying to figure out the mystery of you know who had the magnetic boots and all this kind of thing, and you know who shot Gorkon, and it turns it into a little bit of a, a slightly paranoid conspiracy thriller in space, which ultimately is all about insidious forces within both governments trying to sabotage the peace effort. You know, you've got General Chang on the Klingon side and you've got like Admiral Cartwright and Colonel West on the, the Federation side. And that in itself, I think, is is telling of how it's 
questioning this this concept of the end of history and how we're at such a crux point because Maya presents a story within the Star Trek universe which has characters fundamentally trying to challenge this new paradigm, you know, that they're trying to sabotage peace. They're trying to, you know, for efforts which um, I think Maya talks about in A View from the Bridge as to whether or not um, it's either in A View for a Bridge or the mi- or, or the 50-year mission where they're talking about whether or not Chang and Cartwright were actually wrong, <laughs> ultimately, which is a really interesting yeah, way of looking at it, even though they were bad guys and they assassinated people and they were killers and that kind of thing, without looking at it from that point of view, talking about the long-term consequences of something like this happening. There's, there's some fascinating ideas as to whether or not the end of history is a good thing. you know. And if you go back to what Fukuyama was saying about how it's sort of the, the, the result of this has been nationalism, fundamentalism and you know, like a massive embroiled with technology, a massively changing world where the, nothing is is certain anymore. It almost feels like this idea of that we're living again in a quite a paranoid conspiratorial age was there in Star Trek Six. You know, in that you know you couldn't. It was the first Star Trek movie to present the idea that there were people actively trying to sabotage. The Star Trek universe, I think, if you if you if you see what I mean, you know, and 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 it's why I'm surprised. Well, I was going to say I'm surprised that Gene Roddenberry was okay with the film, but frankly, he was dying at the time, and he didn't really he didn't really see that film properly or with the mind that he would have done. I suspect had they made that film, tried to make that film five years earlier, he would have had real problems with what Maya was trying to question about the future that would come after the the quote-unquote end of history. Do you know what I mean? I think he did have uh, big problems with the film, to be honest. I mean, Maya talks about going to see him. He said there was this kind of expectation, he describes it as kissing the ring, that basically yeah. he would kind of, um, although Roddenberry wasn't really involved with the movies in any meaningful way, you had to kind of go and run things by him and sort of talk to him about them. And he was very unhappy, particularly with the idea of Cartwright uh, being one of the conspiracies. Yeah. Um, you know, he was extremely, and Maya describes they basically had a massive bust up um, and he kind of stormed out of his office. He does say when he finally saw the kind of finished cut of the film, he said some fairly positive things about it, but this was literally three days before he died. Yeah. You know, pretty much it was the last piece of, you know, new Star Trek that he would have seen. And maybe that's because, you know, as much as it has all those elements, and this is a kind of argument that comes back again and again with Discovery and, and Picard again, as much as the story has those kind of darker, more cynical elements, it does end on a moment of hope and optimism, you know, with Kirk and Azetbor kind of finding each other and, and those lovely lines, you know, you've restored my father's faith and you've restored mm. my son's. As mm. kind of, and then the kind of quite almost sort of cheesy ending in a sense that seems quite reassuring and quite kind of homely and comfortable. It, it sort of brings it back to a real Star Trek feel. But I think it's a film that is a film of many very different parts. I mean, I have to say, many people, this is their favourite original series film. It's not mine. I mean, I actually think it might be my third favourite. And I know that's a kind of controversial view. Just because, just because I think that, uh, and, I, and I do love it. I really enjoy it. I, I think it's a great film. But I do think it's kind of, what I think Maya did with The Wrath of Khan, 
which I don't think it's a spoiler to say is my first favourite, uh, is that he, you know, famously, there were all these different scripts and it was a complete mess and they couldn't work out what they were doing with this film. And what his great skill seemed to be was in assembling all these different ideas and gathering all this stuff and bringing it together into a whole that was greater than the sum of its parts. And that's what he managed to do with The Wrath of Khan was to unify all this different stuff and all these different strands into a film that feels to me very tight and very kind of self-contained and very much its own perfectly sort of shaped thing where everything seems to lock together and, and, and fit together. My feeling is that The Undiscovered Country, as much as I love all the parts, I think it's got many fantastic parts. It's got some of the best parts in Star Trek. It's got great moments. It's got great ideas. It's got great kind of visuals. It's, 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 got, it's got all kinds of brilliant uh, elements. For me, it never quite becomes more than the sum of those, but like the parts are greater than the than the whole, if that makes mm, sense. Mm. Um, which is not is not a bad thing. I mean, I you know, like I said, I think it's a really enjoyable thing. I think it's you know um, definitely a success as these films go. But for me, that's what takes it slightly below both Wrath of Khan and, to be honest, the Voyage Home because Same. the Voyage Home is a bit. <laughs> You know, you could say it's a bit disposable. Yeah. I feel like it absolutely knows itself and it's yeah. true to itself. And it's kind of, I mean, yes, you've kind of got the weird thing of the of the bracketing storyline and then the kind of, you know, back in time storyline. But it feels very much one thing somehow. Whereas Undiscovered Country, as much as I love it, I think is trying to be a lot of different things. And it can sometimes feel a little bit disjointed. You've got the Sherlock Holmes thing. You've got the spy thriller thing. You've got the the section of it that never quite works for me is the kind of romp in the gulag, basically, with all these you know sort of weird aliens and and uh, what's the name David Bowie's I, wife, and, you know, and exactly and Kirk fighting himself. All the, again, this kind of slightly cheesy stuff. It it feels to me like there's there's several sort of films in there, kind of fighting against each other to some extent. But but it's also partly that I think it's a much less serious film than The Wrath of Khan. You know, it, it does have a kind of jokey sensibility. There are serious points being made there, but it's quite cheeky. It's quite the whole thing with Spock claiming that he's descended from Sherlock Holmes. There's a kind of playfulness about the way that Maya writes this film. I think compared to, you know, the humour in Wrath of Khan, there is, you know, there are great humorous lines in Wrath of Khan, but they're a bit more sort of grounded and a bit more sort of, you know, it's the kind of biting humour of McCoy in a way, rather than the kind of playful humour of the writer sort of nodding at the audience you know Spock's line only Nixon could go to China again is a kind of it's sort of telegraphing it's a, it's a meta joke if you know what mm-hmm. I mean it's a joke that kind of is signalling to the audience you know you know you're watching Star Trek and watching Star Trek means that you know this is about something more than what it's really about yeah. I remember the first time I saw it, I was really baffled by that line. And I sort of thought they can't do that. You know what? Again, you know, an old Vulcan proverb. It clearly isn't an old Vulcan proverb. It's kind of, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's that sort of, I mean, I mean Spock is just a, a pathological liar in this film, basically. He just yeah. keeps saying saying things that can't possibly be true, but that sound, uh, that you know, that, that are kind of amusing um, one way or another. I was interested to, when I looked it up, that line actually apparently predated Nixon going to China is the weird thing. Is it, it that, that kind of phrase came about when it was, I suppose, maybe a possibility. And this, this is going from Wikipedia, but apparently the, the earliest version of it, it, it was someone who said only a Republican, perhaps only a Nixon could have made this ah. break and gotten away with it. This okay. is about, I, I don't know if that was specifically going, going to China, but th- this kind of idea that, that the only person who can kind of get away with doing something so extraordinary is the person who you would expect to be so vehemently against it. 
But I do like, I mean, I, you know, I was saying it's, it's Kirk Reagan, it's Kirk Nixon, who, you know, which one of these sort of slightly dubious uh, <laughs> presidents are we associating the captain with? I mean, Kirk in this film, you know, Kirk in Rutha Khan is pretty, Kirk in a lot of the movies, to be honest. I mean, you know, Kirk in the motion picture is a little bit of a jerk. Kirk in the Rutha Khan is, you know, definitely a bit of a grump. Kirk in this film is the one who, you know, for a lot of the film is not, at his best at all. I mean, I've always thought it's interesting that, you know, William Shatner was kind of willing to go in these directions. And certainly, you know, now looking at Picard and people sort of saying, you know, why is Picard less of a sort of paragon than he used to be? And he's kind of showing negative sides to his personality and kind of being a bit grumpy and being a bit difficult and so on. I think it's great that, you know, in the movies, they were able to kind of make Kirk a bit more of a rounded character in some ways, give him some seriously negative personality traits as well as positive ones and this idea of you know these these two guys kirk and spock who you know spock says have we outlived our usefulness a line incidentally which maya borrows i mean he's a great one for borrowing from his own work because he uses that exact line in his early uh sherlock holmes novel seven percent solution way back in the 1970s you know before he even worked on rutherford khan so that's a line that he's kind of using uh repeatedly but also this idea of these two guys who are kind of from an earlier generation is a concept that maya has repurposed from the the film he made immediately before the undiscovered country uh which is a film called company business which is a kind of cold war spy thriller essentially not massively successful he describes it in his book as being a catastrophe i think that's a little bit harsh uh but but it's it's not a great film it's a slightly i would say slightly plodding spy thriller in a way but interestingly the original title for company business the title he wanted you know that he wrote the script under was dinosaurs because it was about these two guys who were kind of from this earlier period of the cold war and find themselves at the kind of tail end of the cold war uh essentially being kind of stitched up by their own people and very much the same kind of thematically the same stuff about the kind of sort of almost the coup within the the intelligence services and so on you know their own kind of superiors are working against them and these two guys are just they're not where it's at now they they're the dinosaurs they're kind of relics of a of a bygone age and again you know Meyer appropriates many of the kind of sort of themes of that film in the undiscovered country i mean when we've got you kind of get it again with McCoy and Kirk uh, being these two guys on the run. It sort of parallels a lot of what's because what goes on is there's this sort of um, kind of uh, prisoner exchange goes wrong. And then this Gene Hackman, who's the American guy and uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov, who's the Soviet guy, end up kind of going on the run together and trying to evade their own forces who are sort of out to get them. So there's this this sense somehow, I think was there's a little bit of a parallel with Kirk and McCoy sort of out in the cold um, in a way. There's also a lot of scenes that kind of echo one way or another between the films, uh, you know, these sort of shady meetings of kind of government figures and so on that we, that we see in the kind of sense of the, the way the conspiracies are sort of playing out and so on. So definite kind of parallels between those two films. But at the heart of it, again, this sort of idea of these old cold warriors, you know, what Chang says to Kirk, you, you know, that they're the two historically the, the warriors of the Cold War. And yet now that war is kind of coming to an end. And, you know, what? Where is there a place for those people? Can they find a role for themselves in the kind of new world, in the, in the kind of post-historical world? Or are they just obsolete? Uh, and I think this is more evidence that the, the Kirk as Reagan thing is maybe a bit more acute than the Kirk as Nixon thing I, I would say because you know you only have to look at, at, at 
Reagan, whose legacy has, I'd say, become a bit of a mixed one as a president in, in time. You know, I think at the time he was he was popular within certain you know factions of his of, of his country. You know, presided over a big economic boom in the U.S. You know, the '80s with all its glitz and glamour. You know, he was a very sort of personifiable president in a way that, say, Kennedy had been in the early 60s, for instance, and that they hadn't really had since since Nixon's uh, ignominious end, because obviously Nixon infamously was... Uh, uh, well, he, 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 he resigned before he could be impeached and kicked out of office, you know, after the Watergate scandal in the uh, mid-1970s, which itself led to a multitude of conspiracy th- theories and thrillers and things like All the President's Men, you know, in the 1970s, which was based on the story of how that was all exposed by uh, two Washington Post journalists and, you know, st- and really sparked a sort of whole lexicon of, of 1970s conspiracy thriller movies and sort of cast a pallor over that whole era. And, and it was before this happened that Nixon did go to China <laughs> in order to try and, you know, make inroads with Chairman Mao and, and at the time that, you know, China was doing the Great Leap Forward. So there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of historical sort of aspects to the fact that I think Reagan was quite a signature president at this time. And he, you know, presided over the end of the Cold War, but he didn't finish it, you know, in that sense, because he was out of office by 1989, he did, he did his two terms and then it was um, George Bush Sr. who came in and he was the guy in his term before Clinton came in, I think in 1980, uh, 92, 1993, when, you know, uh, uh, and he, he was he was the, that signature president of that era. But I think, so it's interesting how Kirk sort of represents a Reaganite character because Reagan was an old actor, as you talked about earlier. You know, he was famous as an actor throughout the 40s and the 50s. And a cowboy. A, I mean, not just any right. actor, but a cowboy. And, you know, what is Captain Kirk? But a cowboy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. He was a, he was a bit of a, an, a a bit of a showman in some ways, a bit of an orator. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's worth remembering. And this is something that I wasn't really alive for particularly, although I was alive during Reagan's presidency, but I didn't really know, understand it then, was that his, his election slogan was Make America Great Again. You know, and this is this is something that only really became apparent and well known, obviously, when Trump's campaign, President Trump's campaign happened. Um, and he is he is in he has Reaganite sort of tendencies, Trump. And you can see the sort of comparisons and, and links, even though they are two very different people. And frankly, Trump has more in common with Nixon for obvious reasons. But Trump is the TV star. You know, Trump is a reality TV star as much as he's, you know, an allegedly successful businessman, isn't he? So it's there is that kind of sense. He's the celebrity president. Mark too. He's almost a, a Nixon Reaganite combination, really. Trump, in many ways, and Kirk, I think, doesn't necessarily have the corruption, but he does have. He does have the inbuilt racism in this film, like you, like you mentioned. You know, there there is that really quite shocking line when they're at, they're at dinner and he says, um, and they're talking about uh, history, and and Kirk says, "Oh, Earth, Hitler, 1938." And it's Changa goes, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, because he's because his inference is quite clear, you know, in that he this is what he kind of considers the Klingons to be. He considers them to be monsters in many ways. And he has he has no real understanding at that point of what the Klingons are. And I think if you went back to Reagan and particularly his 
you know, him coming to power on a sort of very sort of anti-communist sort of whole push. You know, he he, he would he was a president who would have gone in with a very kind of, you know, we will we will beat the commies, you know, we will win the Cold War. And then maybe as time went on, he kind of understood that they needed to work with Russia more, especially when Gorbachev came in, in order to try and fashion an end to this conflict, like as you say, was in theory it only takes one person to push a button, you know, and, and it causes complete global death. So I think you might be able to see a, a parallel there between these two in that by the end of the of the undiscovered country, Kirk has come to understand that he was wrong, you know, and a lot of his prejudice was partly based on David's murder in the search for Spock. But it wasn't just that. You know, I think it's important to remember that Kirk wouldn't have liked the Klingons anyway before Krug murdered his son. And if he was being honest that, you know, the Klingons didn't kill David, a psychopathic Klingon killed David. That's the difference. And I think he, he, he's, he, he had an inbuilt prejudice based on, you know, years of history, the, the kind of interactions he had with the Klingons back in the original series. But I think what he, what he learns is, is a sort of mutual respect. And I think that is a, that's a very clear parallel that has formed at the time, you know, in 1991, I think there is a very clear mutual respect between these two superpowers as they come towards the end of, well, the end of the Soviet Union's journey and this apparent dominance of America and what they stand for. And this is where Fukuyama's essay is interesting because what it's essentially suggesting is that it buys into this idea of America's sort of manifest destiny, you know, of this idea that they are they are representative almost of this dominant liberalism, of this democratic, forward-thinking, progressive society that has won, in inverted commas. You know, they have, they have the biggest global superpower. They have the biggest economy. They're making the biggest cultural footprint on the world by this point, you know, with the, the, the way their TV, their movies, their sport, all these things, you know, have, have, are very dominant in popular culture. And it's something that carries into the 90s. And Star Trek reflects and questions in many different ways through those TV series in the 90s, particularly Deep Space Nine, does a lot of questioning as to whether or not that's, you know, America's legacy is, is the, you know, is the right one. And then as Maya says in that book, it all starts to change when you get to 9-11 and you get over the last 20 years that we've experienced, and we, we're recording this in 2020, at the start of a decade which could change everything. You know, depending on where things go, it could be the most tumultuous decade since maybe the 1930s that we're entering now. And there is there is a real sense that the history may have ended, but it's starting again. And it's started again now. <laughs> and we're entering this, this new paradigm. And I think that the, one of the reasons I think I really like The Undiscovered Country, and I agree with you, I'm, I'm with you on the rankings, you know, it's Wrath of Khan number one, Voyage Home number two, Undiscovered Country number three, but I think they're all fantastic. And I think the reason I really like The Undiscovered Country is that it quite boldly, at the end of the first 25 years of Star Trek, sets its stall out and says, this is where we've got to now. Where do we go next? And it is looking to the future, a different future, where, like you say, these old dinosaurs, in inverted commas, aren't going to be there. You know, it's the concluding chapter for these characters as, as a crew. You'll never see them as a crew again. You will see some of the characters again, but you'll never see them as a crew. And I think that's quite... I think it's an alchemy because it wasn't planned. You know, it's one of those things where it wasn't, they weren't thinking two or three years before, oh, let's, let's all, let's wrap all this up perfectly now in a nice little bow to tie in with the end of the Cold War. It was all a bit of sort of magic sort of alchemy that it all sort of came together in the way it did. And we can look back now and go, oh, that's brilliantly sort of timed and everything like that. But it was just 
the way it was just fate. It was just the way it worked out. It, it wasn't any kind of planning to it. And I think it makes the undiscovered country and the story it's telling, I think, quite unusual in that sense. Um, like you say, whether it works completely or not, which is open to question, I suppose. And it absolutely, I suppose, hinges on the idea that to some extent the history of Star Trek, particularly for those first 25 years, you could say the history of Star Trek is the history of America. And the history of America in that period is defined by the Cold War. I mean, they are the, you know, the other is what defines the self in in, in some ways in, in that period. You know, the West versus the rest, the kind of, you know, America gets its identity from not being the communist Soviet, you know, East, essentially. And I mean, it's interesting thinking about these presidents. I mean, we do tend to think historically in terms of like national leaders and so on, and particularly with America, I think, you know, you could say Kirk has, I mean, we talked about both Nixon and Reagan. Of course, in the original series, the president that Kirk has the most in common with is probably Kennedy. You know, he's got this kind of young, attractive kind of, you know, whether you want to say womanizing, kind of, you know, charming. Mm. He's got a kind of real charm. He's got that kind of, if you think of his uh, risk is our business speech, you know, that is absolutely mm. a kind of Kennedy style speech. That's yeah. the kind of, you know, we choose to do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. That's the kind of, that sort of soaring uh, oratory in a way. You know, we've got this kind of, we've pointed to these kind of links to, to Reagan maybe in the film. But I think it's interesting, you know, you point out this is on one level a kind of 1970s conspiracy thriller. Nixon, as the kind of conspiracy thriller president, kind of looms over this film in various ways insofar as, you know, we get that reference to him right at the beginning, which in universe is out of place to the extent that it kind of draws attention to itself. You know, I mean, if Kirk made a reference to Nixon, it'd be one thing, but Spock making a reference to Nixon yeah. feels quite pointed somehow. But then you've got this interesting point where the Federation president says this president is not above the law. Mm. Nixon, of course, said if the president does it, it's not illegal. So there's yeah. kind of an almost <laughs> a, a deliberate parallel there. And the fact that you have yeah. Kirkwood Smith playing that part, who interestingly in company business, which was released like a few months earlier, basically, than this film, plays the the head of the kind of dodgy, you know, CIA team or whatever they are okay you know so yeah. Meyer is kind of recycling his actors as well as his ideas but there's that sort of interesting <laughs> idea that okay so Kirkwood Smith last time we saw him if we're an obsessive Nicholas Meyer fan who goes to see all of his films and nothing else was kind of playing the head of the conspiracy somehow now he's the one sort of saying I'm not going to be you know I'm going to do things by the book I'm going to be the kind of anti-Nixon in a sense but again I feel like it's slightly it touches on that idea and absolutely this kind of sense of this sort of this conspiracy going on, which, of course, did, you know, as you said, turned out to be going on in the Soviet Union, you know, with Gorbachev, you know, surviving a, a coup against him, essentially. But these were exactly the kind of things that were going on from the the dinosaurs, from the old kind of um, cold warriors who didn't want to make peace, didn't want to move forward. But I think it's interesting as well that you picked up on the racism. I mean, that's another big element of the story is it's not just it's it's not just that Kirk is too stuck in the past it is this visceral racism which was the other thing i think that that really bothered roddenberry about the film was these comments you know from random enterprise crewmen saying about how the klingons smell and they you know they they can't tell them apart and all, all these kind of racist tropes basically kind of racist stereotypes you get Chekhov's line guess who's coming to dinner again a kind of you know alluding to that film yeah. which is all about sort of um race relations in racial America and yeah so on, and racial tension and and mm. 
and you know sort of trying to make friends with someone of a of a different race and the kind of prejudices that kind of feed into that and all those sorts of things um Roddenberry was very uncomfortable with it i think maya says that uh brock peters who played cartwright uh, struggled with some of the lines that he'd given him because he, he has these lines calling the, the Klingons the trap. They're going to become the trash of the galaxy. He has this quite racist rhetoric in a way. And Maya sort of said he, you know, he, he, he kept flubbing his lines basically because he felt so uncomfortable about, uh, saying these things. Again, interesting parallels with Picard, I think. I mean, in, in the Picard series, we've got the same thing basically with the Romulans as happened obviously in Undiscovered Country with the Klingons. Now, when they were working on Discovery, they were saying that they'd hired Nicholas Meyer because Undiscovered Country was going to be a sort of touchstone. In some ways, I feel like Undiscovered Country is more of a touchstone for Picard. You've got absolutely this idea of the Romulans as these kind of refugees, the trash of the galaxy. You know, what are we going to do with them? How are we going to deal with them? Inspired by this idea of the kind of East Berliners, you, you know, flooding across basically into the West and, you know, what's going to be done with these people fleeing this sort of collapsing empire in a sense there's interestingly i hadn't noticed this until this rewatch it's a kind of throwaway line and i don't know if it leads to anything i mean maybe someone filled some of this in in some of the novels or whatever but there's a line in towards the very end of the film that the federation president is giving his sort of speech and we're not really listening to it if you know what i mean but he starts talking about the evacuation of chronos so there seems to be a suggestion that chronos itself is going to have to be evacuated like mm. the klingons are going to have to leave now i don't really understand why that would be the case because if the issue is that they they they've lost resources then that's one thing maybe they need helping out somehow there's there's i think there's some ambiguity about whether it's power or oxygen or what it is exactly that they're they're losing but that idea that again they're going to kind of be refugees in their own empire somehow potentially is quite interesting and is quite telling and there's definitely that sort of question there i suppose of what how does the federation respond when their old enemies finally ask for help it's not that they're going to win by everyone just sort of stepping back and, and maintaining the status quo in their own sort of sphere something has, has gone wrong with one side or another and obviously we saw some of these things after the second world war with you know reconstruction efforts in germany and so on and efforts to you know and the decision to basically help rebuild germany rather than kind of punishing them in a sense in the way that happened after the first world war but i suppose this kind of real question of you know what is the what what course does the federation take in a situation like that and we've seen with picard it's much more complicated it's not just a handful of kind of diehard conspirators who who seem like a slightly crackpot group i mean as much as someone like valerius okay she's she, she's at the sort of reasonable end of the sort of fundamentalist <laughs> group in some ways but yeah. but you know they they seem like a a a bunch who need to get over themselves somehow by the time you get to picard it all seems much more complicated it's much more sort of political i mean i'm thinking partly of una mccormick's brilliant novel as well which goes into a lot more detail but even in the show itself you've got this sense of the kind of politics of it and people saying you know this is this where we want to be spending our resources is this the right thing to do it's not as blatant as kind of outright racism necessarily it might be a little bit more like the kind of debates that we see going on in the real world where, where the racism is absolutely a big part of our attitude towards refugees and so on but it's sort of often cloaked and disguised and sort of hidden behind niceties and and sort of discussions about you know resources and and kind of um quotas and and, and these these 
tidier, more appealing or, or more sort of presentable representations of it. But if you think about it as well, they're, they're quite often economic realities as well. You know, in terms of these refugee situations, particularly in our world, a lot of the racism is usually rhetoric that's stirred up by particularly nationalist governments and systems that are terrified of economic collapse. You know, they, they'll they never really come out and say that. But no, you're finding that with how uh, America is de- deal, deals with, with Mexicans on the border, how, you know, certain parts of the Eurozone deal with Syrian refugees. You know, there is a real fear that these these refugees flooding in will cause a drain on, on resources, which will tank the economy, which will then cause these governments to lose their grip on power so a lot of it then a lot of the rhetoric is fueled into xenophobia which allows them to for the will of the people kick these refugees away you know and say get out of here you know oh we you know and people don't always necessarily see the the deeper economic realities but it's obviously in the star trek universe that isn't in theory a problem and this is where i think where it's interesting in what the end of history as an essay was suggesting about where we were going to head and where Roddenberry imagined the Star Trek universe would be in the 23rd and 24th centuries. Part of the reason that I think they did a story about the Klingons and Federation coming together as a peaceful unit is that Roddenberry in 1987 had planted Worf on the bridge of the Enterprise as a way of saying, the Klingons are going to be our friends in 80 years from where we are now. We are going to see a progression. Our enemies will become our friends. Maybe him, again, you know, being quite forward thinking in how when he envisaged Star Trek with a multinational crew in the 60s, he was he was then in the 80s and thinking, well, you know, the Cold War is not going to last forever. The Russians may well be our friends one day. Let's put a Russian on the bridge, you know, in that allegorical sense. And yet he never really intended Worf to be much more than that, a tokenistic kind of visual character and an allegory and, and metaphor for, you know, the thawing of relations and the enemies becoming friends. And it was only really when, you know, he after he died and, and during, you know, the Michael Pillar years that Worf started to be fleshed out into much more of a character. But that wasn't really what Roddenberry intended. He wanted him more as a totem. And I think the crucial, the reason I bring this up is because, well, apart from the fact that, that Michael Dorn is in the Undiscovered Country playing what I think... Of course, was, yeah. <laughs> I think in the old, in the sort of non-canonical stuff, he was he was confirmed to be Worf's grandfather or something like that. I'm sure that was like a non-canonical well, he's called, thing. He's called General Worf. Well, he's called so, General Worf. Although, so exactly. Interestingly, although not in the credits, but he is he is in the dialogue. He is named yeah. as, as Worf. So General yeah, he's you know Worf is yeah. Worf, son of Moog, son of someone, son of Worf. I guess right. Or, you know, presumably, whatever, however yeah. far back it goes. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so he is definitely <laughs> an ancestor. It feels like yeah, he feels like he's playing an ancestor of Worf. So. I think the point is that Roddenberry imagined that the Federation wouldn't act in this way. You know, he did, he never imagined. And it's why I think when we get to the next generation, which was only a few years before this, he doubles down on that future, which is 80 years or whatever beyond the undiscovered country. He doubles down on this idea that it will be a full on utopia, that the Federation will there'll be no conflict, you know, that the, the, all the crews will get on fine and they will go out there and they will spread this message of uh, unity and peace and everything like that, and and all of the people who work for Roddenberry, you know, he was a man alone. Everyone went, this isn't, this is how it's going to be. You know, this this vision you have is wacky. That by the time we get to the twenty fourth century, we're going to be these perfect utopian humans. It's just not realistic. And 
after he died particularly, they, they, they had the freedom really to challenge this idea that the Federation would always act in this virtuous best interest, even without an economic thing. You know, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. You know, in theory, the Federation represents this final liber- libertarian government, you know, this system of government that, that, that the end of history was sort of suggesting that it, it, it's, it's the end point of that. But the reality is that the end of history... <laughs> I think in Roddenberry's mind, the end of history was there. It was in the 23rd, 24th centuries. And then ultimately, it was impossible to maintain because when you have in the real world, you know, things going south, you can't help. But, you know, I mean, it's one of the debates about things like Picard. And one of the reasons that I th- I will defend that show when when the time comes fully, because I think it's more realistic to depict a future that challenges some of these ideas than when the world is going to hell in a handcart. And right now, you know, not to get too current, but, you know, we're recording this in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And it feels like we're, we're living in, in the post-apocalyptic world <laughs> a little bit right now. You know, it feels like everything is sort of collapsing. And it has felt like that for a while now. And I think to actually produce a Star Trek series that is suggesting that the end of history happened and that we're in this perfect future is really unrealistic. And it's hard to grasp. It's hard to... Hope is one thing, but I think you have to have a level of... For us to really buy into this world and buy into what these ideas are, you have to understand that there has to be a level of conflict. There has to be a level of strife towards it. And I think... One of the, I think that's something that, you know, you see in Discovery, you mentioned it, how Discovery was potentially a touchstone from the undiscovered country. The whole idea, the whole, one of the reasons that Tukuvma in the start of that series wants to, you know, ally the Klingon Empire is because he's terrified of them losing their individuality. He's terrified of the Klingons being consumed by this federation on the march, the march of liberalism, the march of libertarianism he's terrified of that because he feels like it's going to be they're going to become a homogenized part of an anti-borg almost you know this peaceful you know strident crusade throughout the galaxy that i think is unrealistic and and i think that's one of the things that the undiscovered country is i think I, i like the message at the end that is hopeful that believes we can work together but that it's not an easy road and that you're gonna have people push back at this like Cartwright did, like Chang did, and believe that maybe we were better we're better off not at the end. You know, we're better off in the middle of the journey, maybe, or still fighting for that journey. Or just that that journey never ends on some level. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I would say in our own experience in the years since then, in the whatever it is, 25 odd years since then, it feels like history comes and goes. You, you know, every time we think we're done with it, history strikes back, you know, whether it's 9-11. Next Generation possibly exists in a little bit of a bubble. And that's one reason why there's such a kind of disjunct between Next Generation and Picard. I mean, Picard in mm. some ways feels more like a sequel to Deep Space Nine thematically yeah. than it does <laughs> yeah. a sequel yeah, does. to The Next Generation. Because Next Generation on this basis exists in a kind of post-historical world. And that's one of the reasons that, as you say, there was this kind of 
disagreement in a sense between Roddenberry and this idea of Roddenberry's box and the kind of strictures of you know no conflict no you, you, you know the kind of the utopian ideals that he wanted to sort of encode into next gen and writers who are looking for conflict and drama and you know the ways of, of telling these stories because ultimately the end of history on one level means the end of narrative yeah and actually Fukuyama kind of talks about this uh, towards the end of the end of history he says the end of history will be a very sad time uh, and and he describes it in a sense in opposition to the kind of well, I suppose he's talking about the Cold War but in some ways it, the, the things that he talks about called to mind the Second World War for me and interestingly you know I say okay history strikes back with the coronavirus the coronavirus obviously causing devastation around the world but it's also bringing together a lot of people it's also bringing out good qualities in people that we did see in the second world war it's bringing out the kind of you know qualities of endurance individually but it's also bringing out a desire to help others and kind of people trying to you know care for each other it's bringing out a kind of sense of we're all in this together a sense of society as having some kind of uh, meaning in a way that in the good years we kind of tend to forget. But what Fukuyama says is he says the struggle for recognition, the willingness to risk one's life for a purely abstract goal, the worldwide ideological struggle that called forth daring courage, imagination and idealism will be replaced by economic calculation, the endless solving of technical problems, environmental concerns and the satisfaction of sophisticated consumer demands. In the post-historical period, there will be neither art nor philosophy just the perpetual caretaking of the museum of human history. And that, in some ways, there is almost a parallel there between that and what we see in, in that kind of stable vision of the future in Star Trek. Do you know what I mean? The kind of caretaking of human history is not a million miles away from what we see in Next Gen. And I said that as a massive Next Gen fan, you know, that was the that was my kind of gateway Star Trek. I love that series. And one of the things I love about it is that it's kind of cosy and comfortable and you can go back and feel safe in that show in some ways but there is that kind of sense that everything bad that was ever going to happen has already happened you know apart from on a smaller level i mean i guess once you get the borg and stuff you you, you do get more you know more serious bad things that might be going to happen but it, it feels like a very stable very safe universe by the time you get to picard it feels very different. But interestingly, a very final line Fukuyama throws in is he says, perhaps this very prospect of centuries of boredom at the end of history will serve to get history started once again. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, again, almost thinking of history as the, you know, as the writer, as the kind of narrative writer yeah. does that this is the, um, this end point is not sustainable because all story is effectively change and flux. And, and that is absolutely what we've seen in Picard. It is, by the looks of it, what we're going to see in Discovery going forward. Maybe we bought it more in the 90s when we felt that we had reached this point. And now, 25 odd years later, we don't really believe in that anymore. That that idea that, you know, we've reached some kind of perfect, stable order no longer pertains because even our own structures of society are kind of collapsing. You know, we've got, as you say, in America and Britain, we've got two countries being led by kind of clownish you know, very, I mean, it, it obviously democratically elected and so on, but equally very divisive, very unpopular, very worrying figures one way or another. We've got this kind of global catastrophe, which is, you know, killing vast numbers of people and and, and destroying uh, economies around the world one way or another, you know, I mean, causing untold havoc. It, it, it doesn't feel like we um, live in that kind of cosy, carpeted bridge of the next gen universe anymore 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think it's also one of the reasons why Deep Space Nine was such an interesting series in that it does start in the same vein of being a bit of a, a, a museum of history in that, in that when it begins, it's retelling the story of the Holocaust through the Bajorans, through the, the Cardassians, with the Federation as a sort of observer, you know, they are the, they are the observers. They're coming in. They're seeing the reconstruction of Bajor. They're seeing how the Cardassians are these awful fascists who were kicked off, but they, they don't really like it. And they're watching it. And then when the Dominium arrive, the Federation are dragged back into this and they start to live that role again. They get more, they, that's the point that they become involved in history. If you look at it from this context and they're no longer just the observers, you know, that's when the, that, and that's when the TNG era starts to change. And, and although we never see Picard and co in the Dominion War, apart from tie in novelizations and things, you know, there are references, references to it in things like insurrection, you know, in the first contact, you see Worf show up on the defiance, you know, with a ship that was built yes, to fight the Borg, which he does in First Contact, but was crucial to the Dominion War. And so, you know, you've got you've got that point where, you know, you mentioned the Borg in Next Generation. Yes, they were a big, you know, threat, but they came and they went. And, it, and they never really, they never repeated that story until First Contact. You know, it took them another five or six years to, to, to do that. And they, they did it on a big movie canvas where you needed a big threat. But even then, that film... Half of that film is the voyage home, really. The re- and the other half is is a, is a, is alien, I suppose, if you look at it from that context or something along those lines. You know, they don't fully commit to the idea of a full-on Borg invasion, even in that film. So you never really get that happen again. And by the time they come into Voyager, you know, they're on the distant side of the galaxy, so Earth isn't under threat. So it's a different kind of thing. And I think it's a really interesting way of looking at it that maybe from deep space nine onwards, the Federation is actively then again involved in history. And then if you, if you look at enterprise, they try with enterprise to try and reset the button a little bit and have it be more of that sort of safe, safe ish TNG universe. Cause one of the big problems with enterprise in the first couple of series is that it just feels a little bit like they're trying to do TNG, but 200 years earlier and it'd be a little bit more edgy, but you never feel really there's any threat until the Zindi show up and they nuke like half of Florida, you know, and then that's when there it's, it's, it becomes a really big reaction allegory for nine 11 and the show really takes off. And that, um, but that is a reactive kind of show. Whereas deep space nine was much more, almost ahead of the curve, I think, really, in how it transforms into a show which is concerned that this Federation end of history, this ultimate sort of point of TNG, will won't last and it can't last and there will come a point where something has to unsettle that and from then onwards... It, it, it all really changes. You then it, it, it infects the movies. You know, you get like, Nemesis, where you have this. You have another sort of uh, well, not another Khan, but they're going for another Khan in Shinzon, and this, you know, the, a new sort of Romulan threat and all this kind of thing. And then by the time we get to, you know, Discovery, if you skip past the Kelvin movies, which is something slightly different, by the time you get to Discovery, you've then got a resurgence of the Klingon threat, even though it's set in the past. I know, but it's still telling that it's still reframing the Klingons as bad guys in a different way than they were in the TNG era when by and large they were good guys apart from that weird couple of seasons where they they you know they they become the bad guys in DS9 but they in the end they're allies you know and then so it sort of it sort of flips that back again so it's it's interesting how it once I suppose once Roddenberry died and once you had this the the undiscovered country be the bridge almost between these two things 
that's when it starts to change. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's interesting, the very final line of that film is almost explicitly making a bridge to the next generation because you have Kirk correcting himself, saying where no man, where no one has gone before. And I always thought that's a kind of interesting moment because I had always assumed watching Next Generation that the shift to from no man to no one was about sort of gender equality and basically saying, you know, it's not the sixties anymore. We're not having the girls in miniskirts. You you know, we're kind of, you know, women can go into space as well, but what, you know, Star Trek six is doing is reframing it in terms of saying that where no man has gone before is kind of essentially racist in the sense of, you know, as that Boer saying, you know, my very name is racist and so on this stuff about inalienable human rights and all that kind of thing. But again, you know, it's very explicitly saying this is the end of the original series story, but there's a direct bridge into not just into the next generation, but into the the very into every episode of the next generation, if you know what I mean, into mm. every episode mm. of Star Trek kind of going forward in a sense, into the the most core sort of beliefs and kind of ideology of Star Trek going forward that are kind of encapsulated in that sort of mission statement that we get at the start of each episode. So there's a definite sense of a kind of bridge there. I mean, I think it's interesting, however you want to look at it, this idea of the end of history, you know, Fukuyama is taking it He's borrowing ideas from Marx and from Hegel and kind of other philosophers and so on, and very much seeing it as history being something that leads up to a, you know, a definitive end point and everything after that is just sort of almost kind of blank that there is this sort of sense. And, and Star Trek could go in that direction in some ways. I mean, if you think of, I've mentioned these many times before on this podcast, the culture novels of Ian e. M. Banks, for example, very much a kind of, um, post sort of post-historical world in some ways seems very kind of safe, very kind of leisurely, very kind of, you know, utopian. But I mean, the danger of utopias is they can seem a bit boring in some ways because there isn't much to threaten. There isn't much uh, conflict. There isn't much drama. You know, everyone is kind of living a life of leisure one way or another. But then, of course, what we've seen in the real world, and you're right, you know, with Enterprise, Enterprise maybe wants to exist in that kind of next-gen mindset and then 9-11 happens yeah. you know, pretty much as ne- as Enterprise is getting underway. And almost immediately, it becomes impossible to do that. And it takes them a little while to work out how to kind of uh, reflect that in the show. And there are some early episodes where they kind of touch on thematic links. You know, there are kind of visual uh, echoes of the, of the uh, remnants of the World Trade Center towers, for example, uh, in, in some of the early episodes. There's, there's that one that's all about... Um, you know, could be about almost about Guantanamo Bay. I know mm. it was also inspired by the kind of Japanese internment camps and so on. But I mean, there are kind of little, and, and then by the time you get to season three, it's like, okay, right now we're doing 9-11. You know, Star Trek has gone back to doing rip from the headlines and we're doing contemporary history because history is sort of back with a vengeance. You're right. In DS9, history is cyclical. History seems to come round uh, and it doesn't necessarily repeat as fast, but it repeats in a kind of slightly surprising manner so you get you know the Cardassians go from being the kind of oppressors to being the oppressed and and this sort of sense of the same patterns repeating and interestingly in the finale of Picard you get Narek kind of making a similar claim because um someone says to him oh uh you know do you do you view this the admonition do you view it as a prophecy and he says something along the lines of no i think no this is history and history always repeats itself essentially so again there's that kind of idea that just when you think you're safe <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna come and get you one yeah. way or another and yeah. i suppose that you know 
these are different models of understanding our, our, our lives and our, our world that we live in and kind of what's going on. And in some ways, maybe Fukuyama's view back in 1989 does seem overly sort of, well, both optimistic and pessy. And insofar as he thinks the end of history is going to be deadly boring, well, quite a few interesting things have happened <laughs> since then. And we might frankly prefer that they hadn't. <laughs> yeah, I think I, 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 looking back, I wish he'd been right. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tony, it's been a pleasure talking to you about the end of history here today, but that's not the only thing that we've been talking about on Track FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, the orb. But of all the Section 31 that we're getting in new track, this feels the most legitimate. This feels like the Section 31 yeah. that we, we know from yeah. Deep Space Nine and it doesn't feel like oh we're just going back to the well again because you know even Ira said you know I know they've used it in the movies but we created this Earl Grey uh, not still no clue it's going to I'm going to kick myself when I get it yeah tell us Jim Kirsten Dunst oh, oh Kirsten my Dunst. gosh of I, course I hate the universe <laughs> <laughs> oh Kirsten my- Gosh, I knew that. What's wrong with us? The best lockdown performance in all seven seasons, in my opinion. Literary Treks. If this were an episode of Voyager, and I actually think this book would make an interesting episode of Voyager, and like we kind of hinted at, maybe it's very much like an episode mm-hmm. of Voyager that we'll talk about. I don't think it would have been called Seven of Nine, right? No. No, it would have to have like a one-word title to fit in with most of the other Voyager episodes, so you can't really remember which one it's about. Yeah, it would just be called Seven. That's what it would be. (laughs) (laughs) To the journey! She did actually mean Mm -hmm. what she said in the back in the space just before they die. I don't know, I just kind of like it. It's just I'm going to tell you I love you just before I die. Not a minute sooner. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like at least I don't have to deal with the ramifications if I'm dead <laughs> well that backfired or maybe she was just like at least I don't have to hear him not say it if we're gonna die so what you're saying is next time that we ask someone to marry them or anyone who asks someone to marry them they should do it on death's door of like some kind yes. of crazy adventure like jumping off a bungee jump. You're in the middle of being eaten by a shark or something. I love you, gobble, gobble, gobble. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. 
Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trackfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at MissAmyNelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at MC and Tony at at AJBlackWriter. You're blended all right.